Welcome to The Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong. The Contrarians is brought to you by Smarks Like Us Clothing and Avnio Films. Be sure to keep up with the pretentious ramblings of Alex and Julio on Twitter at JamesAlexMattis and at Avnio. That's O-V-N-I-O. Yes, this is the main theme from Star Wars Episode 3. Why, you might ask? It's simple. It's the best film in the franchise. Hello, and welcome back to The Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong. My name is Alex, and I'm joined, as always, by Julio. Julio, how are you doing today? I am doing great. I was very happy when you pointed out that uh, for our seventh episode, we're doing a movie that has seven in the title. Unfortunately, it's not just seven. But The Magnificent Seven. Right. That opens the door for our episode eight. Could be about eight millimeters. Or eight crazy nights. Ah, that's, I don't know that I'm up to that. That's, that might be too much. We may be opening the floodgates here, but as mentioned, we are talking about The Magnificent Seven, the Western classic, starring Yul Brenner and Steve McQueen. Julio, you hadn't seen this before, had you? I hadn't. I'd heard about it. And, you know, I've seen the much superior version called A Bug's Life. And, well, you know, I guess that The Magnificent Seven started off, the odds were against it, because I was already, uh, in my mind, Pixar version was the original. Easily understandable. Well, before we start, let me let me give you this this little piece of wisdom from Scott Weinberg. It just says, "Simply one of the most entertaining westerns ever made." I don't think we were watching the same movie. <laughs> but we start off the Magnificent Seven. We open up in a small Mexican village as we see some uh, looks to be local villagers just shucking corn. When business picks up pretty much right off the bat as a group of banditos come in, led by a man that we learn his name is Calvera, and he's there to just take their chickens and their corn and just... No, I think that even in that opening scene, he repeat, he says something that he's going to repeat throughout the movie that I thought was kind of endearing, even though he's the bad guy, which is, ultimately, he's just trying to feed his people. That's why he says every time that somebody tells him, hey, why are you doing this? Why are you being so mean? You see, you see all these people, I need to feed them. I'm like their parent, and these are my children, I have to feed them. But it's just such an annoying sense of entitlement right off the bat that he doesn't have to work for it. Oh, yeah, 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 absolutely. But at the same time, it's almost like they're asking him to do it. I mean, those the farmers, they're all dressed in white. And so, you know, they're, they're just like the perfect target. You know, they're just asking for somebody to rob them. Mm-hmm. I mean, they even, like, stand there. <laughs> they see him coming, and they just stand there. They're like deer headlights. Except for one local. I guess who just kind of snapped in a falling down type fashion who had just shucked too much corn and worked too hard He just charges at Calvera and just a protest and just shot dead in his tracks He didn't really have a good strategy. It was just kind of <laughs> yeah. a Straight ahead. It was a charging. Uh, I think he may have had a machete, but he was running at a group of men with guns. He didn't even like throw the machete at him. You know, he ran at him with the machete. That was that's not how you win a fight. You brought a machete to a gunfight. Literally bringing a knife to a gunfight. <laughs> yeah. And he dies right off the bat. So just a somber tone. The local villagers are wondering how they're going to combat this problem with Calvera because it becomes apparent that it's a continuous problem. That they basically just have all this food. And farming just for someone else to come in and take it from them. Yeah, I mean, it's been going on for a while, and it's not really made clear what exactly makes it different this time. I can't believe that this is the first time they've had that conversation where they just go like, hey, this sucks, we should do something. Yeah. It, you know, they go around and they're like, well, we can't fight, we don't have any guns, what are we going to do? And then they go back to, like, farming, and then it happens again, and for some reason, this time, somebody goes, hey, how about we ask the old man... The oracle. The oracle, so to speak... And he tells them they need to get guns, because that's the answer, I guess, to all life's problems. And where do you go when you need guns, Julio? Well, you go to America, You go to America. You can't grow guns in a crop. I mean, you have to go to an industrialized world. Three of the villagers make their way to America in search of guns. They clearly are the fish out of waters and don't really know, because they just keep saying, we need guns, we need guns. I don't think they understand how it works. Even back then, that was not, <laughs> that was not safe. <laughs> But well, we come across uh, our main characters, the uh, aforementioned Yul Brenner and Steve McQueen. 
the characters of Chris and Vin. There's a little commotion in the town that these villagers have wandered onto. There's a dead man in the streets, and they're arguing over whether or not they can bury him in the local cemetery because he's not white. Yeah, he's he's an Indian, apparently, according to uh, the guy that, that runs the funeral home. You would think when the Mexican villagers see this just blatant racism, they would just move on and go to the next town <laughs> and just hope that, like, outside of this, there would be just some more welcoming people. Right. At the same time, they're human, and they can tell that, that, that there's about to be a good show on right now because there's those two guys, Yul Brynner and Steve McQueen, uh, Chris and Vin. They volunteer to drive, basically, the corpse all the way to the cemetery where it's going to be buried. And, of course, that gets everybody else, like, really excited because that means there's going to be a shootout. Knowing full well, yeah, that the, the road ahead is going to be full of guns and uh, very racist white people calling them, I believe, engine lovers thrown as they're riding the hearse through town. I think that we also see the birth of the phrase uh, riding shotgun, which I had no idea where it came from, <laughs> and I don't know if it came from the Magnificent Seven or from just, like, right around those times, but basically... If you're the guy that's not, like, holding the horses in the carriage, mm -hmm. you're the guy that's sitting next to him holding, holding the shotgun, shotgun. Yeah. then you're riding shotgun. America. And every podcast I learn a new thing about America. <laughs> so they make their way through the town. It's a long, drawn-out sequence, and they get there. They're not in a hurry, though. They're, no. like, and in, in it's really, this entire movie, I'll let you it's know. Not it. <laughs> well, it's not in a hurry. It's not in a hurry, number one. But number two, it's also about the very hardcore bromance between Yul Brenner and Steve McQueen. Yes. They have wonderful chemistry together. <laughs> and uh, A little course, too wonderful. Yeah, I mean, back in the day, I guess, you couldn't really get to that. You had to be really subtle with this kind of thing. But mm -hmm. all you have to do is just watch the way they look at each other and, you know, the banter that they have. And there's, like, you know, forget about it with, like, the rifles as phallic symbols. I mean, that's just, like, there's a lot going on in that, that little carriage ride to the cemetery. There is. So they deliver the coffin. Nothing really goes awry. The Mexican villagers see this, and they automatically turn their attention to Chris Brenner as the potential beacon of hope, so to speak, and the source of, um, you know, where the guns are going to come from. They see this big, strapping, light-skinned American, and they think this is where our salvation lies. They're really locked out, because if they'd gone to someone else before him, they were just so naive. They're, the way they approached him and the way they talked to him about their problems, I mean, they somebody else would have taking advantage of them right away they would mm -hmm. have and they probably would have ended up dead in a ditch somewhere in the old west they didn't even they, test their they didn't shop around they didn't even no look no at no they options. just went straight to the bald guy dressed in black that had like delivered a corpse earlier in the day which I think is a lot for them to take in because you get the impression just shucking corn you don't really see things like that in right. your life yeah I mean this guy is like a superhero in their mind so <laughs> I guess it makes sense to go for him so the villagers plead their case to Chris and he tells them that, you know, he's going to need more money to do this. But he eventually hears their sob story, and he's thinking about he's going to be in on it. And he takes them out to a local bar where we see Steve McQueen once again. He wanders in with all the money that he made from delivering that corpse and just blows it all at once. And he, the he bromance, gamble. Yeah, the bromance is further escalated here when... He you buys him a drink. <laughs> buys him a drink. Pretty scandalous way, too. He just sends the bar fly over and... Says, buy that man a drink. <laughs> to Steve McQueen's credit, though, he doesn't miss a beat. He doesn't really care who's buying him the hooch. He just wants it. So He pulls up a chair and goes there. That's... <laughs> so we move along here and meet our next character, the Magnificent Seven, O'Reilly, played by Charles Bronson, who, like any strapping young man would, is just chopping wood. It's flexing. It would be the role played by, I don't know, Channing Tatum, you know, if we remade it today. I'm pretty sure he's the only character in cinematic history named Fernando O'Reilly. That's just a clash of both worlds. But he tries to justify it. He's like, you know, he's Mexican on one side, Irish on the other, and he's in the middle. Deadline is in the movie. Again, no judgment passed, but the, the, the overtones of the male-on-male -male love in this already is just... Uh... Which, you know, I mean, I'm like, good for them. Mm -hmm. But but then I wish they'd taken a harder stance on that, you know, because if, if this is where you're going with your movie, then the movie should end with Brenner and McQueen, like, holding hands and riding together, which almost happens, but not quite. So I'm a little disappointed by that. And you know what? We skipped, like, one of the guys, the young kid, looks like the love child of Sean William Scott and Guy Pierce. Uh, Chico. Chico, you know, he has a hard-on for, well, for both, for Steve McQueen and for Yul Brynner. Mostly like it's Yul Brynner. He just wants to fit in so bad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's like a, some serious man crushing going on. He stares at them the entire time that they're, like, you know, going to deliver the corpse earlier in the movie. Mm -hmm. He's just, like, wide-eyed and can't wait to, like, you know, just see what happens next. And then when Yul Brynner puts out, you know, the word that he's looking for a few good men, like, he's the first one to show up. And, and I think the symbolism of it, too, is when he asks 
asks him to draw his weapon, he can't quite get it off and can't quite fire. It, so it happens to the best of us, you know. Meeting your heroes sometimes can be a little too uh... make you a little gun shy. Oh <laughs> yeah. So Chico is trying to get into the gang. Meanwhile, we have kind of a, an elongated montage of meeting the rest of the Magnificent Seven. We have Harry, who we just immediately are just supposed to understand is a friend of Chris. From some past heist or something that they had done. He's he's one of those. He's one of the seven that really is underused, to say the least. Mm-hmm. I think he shows up with the least amount of backstory. Shows up, says, "Hey, I'm in," and then disappears until next time that you need him to like show up, just so that they can count that there's seven of them. Nothing he says throughout the course of the movie makes any sense in the context of the film either. He's making some huge assumptions. Yeah. <laughs> I, I'm led to believe this is just jumping way ahead, but I think the Harry character may just never have existed. I think it was just like a figment of Yul Brenner's imagination because he doesn't affect anything in the movie one way or the other. That is true. He, he's like the black maid, and, and it's a wonderful life. He could be imaginary. Yeah. And much like that, I was just really, really bored with this, so I was trying to come up with far more interesting <laughs> plot devices. We meet Britt, who is a very skilled cowboy, and the first scene we see him in wins a large sum of cash for getting a knife off really quick. He takes this job just for the challenge of it all, just to challenge himself. Again, you never know why. He he turns him down, and then two scenes later, when they're ready to go, he just shows up. and hey, I changed my mind. As you do. March me into the death squad. And then there's Lee, who... What can you really say about Lee? He is the second one. <laughs> Him and Harry are the ones that really... The movie is The Magnificent Five. And then the two other guys that we'll bring out every now and then because there were seven samurai in the original <laughs> movie. Harry and Lee are both Ringo Starr in this film. Or uh, whatever the Marx brother that nobody knows. Uh, Zeppo Marx. <laughs> yeah, they, they show up every now and then when you need a, you know... A head count, but they don't really do much. And, and, you know, if you're trying to guess who's going to die first, well, let's go with, like, it's going to be, like, the guys that don't really amount to much. Which is weird. I did think it was backwards, because Chico, the, the eager rookie, you think that's going to be the first guy to go. You think so, too, but, no, he, he has a different fate. The crew bands together and finally makes their way to the village to, I guess, scope out the place. Yeah, it's been by now, like, I don't know, 45 minutes. <laughs> I think it's only been 20. It's just felt like it just 45. It's felt like 45. Yeah. They're taking their sweet time. I mean, there is, like, this is an emergency at the village. Yeah. And, yeah, they're, like, chilling and having drinks and going from one place This to becomes the other. a much more prominent problem throughout the movie. But, yeah, there's just so much time wasting that it's, it could have cost them in the end. Fortunately, it doesn't. They're, like, back in the Old West. They're riding horses. It's not like they could just get in the car and then go to the village or take a plane if they're taking too long, you know? Going places takes time. Yeah. So the fact that they they're on a crunch here, man. They need yeah, to pick up the pace. You wouldn't know it uh, from seeing how to behave. No. As soon as they get to the village, though, Chico takes it upon himself to just punk out the entire place. He finds that their uh, distress signal is the church bell in town. He rings it and causes all of them to come out. And then he gets this big sack on him and gives him a big speech about you need to prove to us that we're here to fight for you. And it's at this point where you want him to be. The one, the first one to go, because he takes way too much upon himself. Yeah, but, you know, it's like, yeah, he pitches him out, and then the old man, you know, the old wise man, he's kind of smiling and going like, fuck yeah, that's <laughs> why we needed Americans here. And then McQueen and Yul Brynner are also kind of like, it seems like they're halfway embarrassed, halfway cool with it. You know, they never bring it up. They don't tell him, hey, don't pull that shit again. You know, they're, yeah. they're just like, okay, well. It's kind of like at the end of Crazy Stupid Love, the, the speech that Steve Carell makes. And the kid, you know, he's kind of embarrassed, but he's kind of behind him. Yeah, they just picked, like, the worst part of the Magnificent Seven there. Mm-hmm. But after he just punks out this entire village, they just decide to celebrate it, and it's just a big party later that day, or night, I, again... Time is not I, linear in this film. Yeah, no, there was there was just like a big wood bull that mm-hmm. they had like set on fire and they were riding it around. I don't know. There was some sort of tribal tele- uh, celebration going on. It was a fiesta. Oh, it was a fiesta. One taking place in Mexico, no less. There's this shocking amount or lack thereof of Spanish in this film. And women, actually. Uh, <laughs> isn't it? I think it's Steve McQueen that goes, I've been to places that have beautiful women. I've been to places that have ugly women. I've never been to a place that had no women. 
And he's right. And of course, after he says that, then you see like a bunch of little girls and women in the rest, you know, the rest of the movie. But speaking of was, little girls, it's right after that we get this really creepy shot of Charles Bronson. Like, yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I actually wrote it down. It's creepy Charles Bronson. <laughs> he's eyeing a young girl. I think he could be just imprinting on her. And it's funny because they take you know their sweet time getting places. But it's like they don't take enough time developing like the characters. They just give him this shortcut. So Charles Bronson's thing is that he's he's the guy that's good with kids. Mm-hmm. You know, unfortunately, they chose to show us that by him being like really creepy with a small girl. He's not offering her candy, but he might as well. He, Again, like, no assumptions were to be made in 1960, but a lot's happened in society since then. So right. doesn't age so well. Yeah, definitely not. But what I was gonna say, <laughs> my original point was that. I agree with Sid McQueen, like, women were nowhere to be seen, you know, an hour into the movie. It's really, you know, it's not the Magnificent Seven, it's the Magnificent Sausage Fest. It's just men everywhere making the decisions and whatever, and it almost makes you wish that it stayed like that, because when women finally show up, they're just, you know, an embarrassment to women everywhere. When when you finally get, like, a female character, she ends up getting involved with Chico. Which is never a good idea. Nope. Calvera's men are spotted as Chico and Britt go to stake it out, and they end up just capping a few of them. And one of them seems to be getting away, and then possibly the most impressive single gunshot I've ever seen in the film comes from this scene where Britt shoots one of Calvera's men off his horse and then curses because he was aiming for the horse. But this is when the guns, the cache of guns, starts to pick up and the Mexican villagers are way too excited for it as um, has become a much bigger problem in today's world. Yes, that's, this is, but that's the problem. Like The Magnificent Seven doesn't play as a warning of what would happen if we start strong-arming foreign countries. You know, instead, it, it looks like a celebration of it, and that is very disturbing. Which leads to almost a comedic montage of them training these Mexican villagers to just become killing machines. Yes, it's it's almost a slap in the face, knowing what we know these days about, you know, what happens when the U.S. forces train, you know, foreign people, and then that comes to bite us in the ass. That's, you know, to see them train those Mexicans, you can almost see those Mexicans, like, three sequels down the road, mm-hmm. you know, coming to America and just fucking things up. Taking over, and yep. we taught them that. Exactly. They learned from thanks, the Thanks, Yule Brenner. Yeah, thanks, Brit. You show them how to unhorse a man from a kilometer away. We then get this very strange, and again, there's many scenes in this that are just taking up time and wasting time they could be preparing with. Chico just finds a bull down by a creek um, in the village, and this does, however, segue to him comedically acting like a matador, but... Our first full-grown woman character comes into play in the yes. film. Yes, Chico's very confused. I mean, I think that he's very confused about his, his uh, sexuality and just his place in this. You know, he's surrounded by six allegedly badass men, and he's still like a young kid, basically. And yeah, I don't know what the hell he was trying to do with the bull. There was a lot of like longing stares between them before the girl shows up, and then when the girl shows up, he loses his shit. He doesn't know what to do. So Petra is the female character's name, and he just chases her down. She slaps him, says, "Don't touch me." Very uncomfortable. How did you know her name? Did it actually say their, her name, or did you look it up? Uh, I looked it up. Oh, okay, yeah, because yeah. I'm pretty sure they don't say her name. That's well. Then how does she have a name? Because I mean, I guess, I guess it was written. She was she was uh, christened by the internet. Maybe <laughs> she was Ed Norton's character in Fight Club. There you go. Yeah. yeah. Chico straps her on his horse and takes her back to the village where the men are look to be working on a moat. It's never quite explained what they were building. Uh, here's another thing that you can you can use to uh, sum up the Magnificent Seven. It's an episode of the A Team. An episode that wasn't edited, you know, they just kept all the boring stuff. You know, because the A-team, they would take care of stuff in an hour. With commercials, for really like 45 minutes. Mm-hmm. You know, there was like, there was a problem, you would go to the A-team, the A-team would go to their, you know, wherever the problem was, where you hire them. They would have an initial confrontation with the villains, the villains would run away, then the villains would come back... They would apparently defeat the A-team, the A-team would be in trouble, and then they would come up with a way of, like, turning the tables, they win, collect their pay, and then leave, you know, and then that's it for a week. So, that's basically what happens in Magnificent Seven, except that, one, they show you the team gathering that takes up, like, feels like half the movie. You know, at the A-team, all they had to do was get Murdoch out of the mental hospital mm-hmm. every week. And then they show you, like, the travel to the place, which, you know, you never saw at the A-team. The A-team, when they were getting, like, 
their shit ready. You know, you had like the the eighteen music, the theme, and then you have like the little montage where they're getting stuff together. Whereas like here, it's not a montage. It's like long scenes of them like putting together a fence and a net and teaching and whatever like the hell they're building here. They're just it's a long consecutive hole in the ground. I'm not quite sure. It what never they're... comes into play. No. I don't think it ever comes into play. I think they were just like giving the villagers busy work. <laughs> We're here. You're going to at least do something while we're here. Now so. paint that wall. <laughs> so Chico brings Petra back to the village and throws her off his horse. They're immediately enraged because the locals had told the women to stay away out of fear that they would be raped if they came in contact with the Americans. I guess that explains why they were not there to begin with mm-hmm. in the first half of the movie. Not even not just the Americans are coming to save the village, but also the Americans watching the movie. <laughs> We Americans, we, we're known to have guns and to rape women by mm. the standards of this movie. We are a necessary evil. <laughs> Steve McQueen, Vin, as soon as he sees a woman, though, he perks up like a puppy who hears the treat jar rattling. That man is thirsty. He's after it. He even asks a couple of the local boys if they have older sisters around. More montages of them turning the villagers into killing machines, to the point where Charles Bronson even tells one of them, uh, if you can't shoot a gun, just use it as a club and bludgeon them to death with it. That's the spirit. <laughs> that's, the, that's the American spirit that we want to teach. We go from that to an actual humane part of the film where they bond over the food they have, or lack thereof. The villagers are whining and dining the Magnificent Seven while they're just eating tortillas. So uh, they turn it around, Steve McQueen, uh, Christmas Carol, he's just got the trough and he's feeding everyone coming by. They bond. Basically, they they make the crucial mistake of bonding with their employers, with mm-hmm. the people that just hired them. And of course, you know, as these movies go, you know, a couple steps forward, you got to take a big step back. Everything seems to be good in the hood, but until the next morning when Calvera and all his men show up, and he's wondering what the fuck these whiteies are doing in his town. It's understandable. I mean, you know, they are the intruders, and they're not just like regular Americans coming here to like snap pictures, or even like. American law enforcement, you know, taking some sort of healthy interest in what's going on, you know, in the border. No, these are American outlaws. So any any decent Mexican citizen would be concerned by the fact that these gunslingers from across the border just just showed up at a village. That's right. So, I mean, don't be confused by the bias in the movie. These guys are also criminals. Mm-hmm. It'd be like Jesse James showing up in the village. And I don't mean the cowboy. I'm talking about Sandra Bullock's ex-husband. The, I'll ring the bell, too. <laughs> Hide the women. <laughs> so, of course, this leads to a big, gigantic shootout. Just bodies are flying everywhere. It's A lot of people are getting shot. Unfortunately... And none of them good guys are. <laughs> unfortunately, the cinematography does not do this scene justice. There's too many erratic cuts, and it's very dusty, and you can't really tell what's going on. It, it also, was like, terrible like sound effect work and visual effect work. It was just... I don't buy a single one of those gunshots. They just... Either they're not synced up properly, or they just don't look like... They're just shooting those guns like they're toy guns. I really feel this would work in a film like MacGruber, and it did. But that's meant to be a comedy, whereas I'm supposed to take this seriously and... It's like they're taking, like, one sound effect off for every, like, shootout or whatever. It, there's just something missing. There's a missing link. Like, uh, earlier when uh, when you first met Brit, and he throws a knife, it was like, there's no sound effect for the knife flying there. He just kind of, like, moves his hand, and then the, the knife is, like, inside the guy, and you're like, what the hell happened? <laughs> You're missing the, you know, the sound effect of the knife. And that's, that's what it's like every time there's a gunfight. The remaining members of Calvera's army, they flee the scene. The dead ones leave behind a lot of guns, and there's a celebration to be had. and like Everyone's really happy, but it's cut pretty short because Calvera's men just got right on the outskirts of the village and with, are still within shooting range and are opening fire. There's more that they they say he's at some point that there's forty of them. There has to be more than forty. Mm. Uh, I mean, I wouldn't want to go back and count the, all the kills, mm-hmm. but I would say at least twenty people die in that first fight, and then I would say forty more come back. You know, and then there's even more people in the final shootout. So, so the villagers and the Magnificent Seven go up into the woods to try to find exactly where they are. They push them back further. To this point where we get a long, big monologue from one of the main villagers, and it's clear at this point the the those once-innocent farmers have a taste for blood. Thank you, America. Yeah, the Americans have turned them... 
and not just the farmers, like the kids as well. Mm. I mean, Charles Brunson's uh, unhealthy interest in children, it's it's actually paying off because now, you know, they follow him everywhere. So, number one, they're in the, in the line of fire. Number two, they're having these, like, really morbid conversations about what's going to happen when and if Charles Brunson dies. Oh, well, we'll bury you, and uh, we'll make sure that there's always flowers in your tomb. And even Charles Bronson seems disturbed by the fact that these three kids are just talking about that stuff. So it's at this point where there's just a lot of time spent trying to come up with a conceivable plan. The villagers don't suffer from it. The Magnificent Seven don't suffer from it. We, the audience, do. Yeah. We're just sitting through a bunch of nothingness. Just sitting around, having they're having a lot of like soul-searching moments and monologues and really weird... I guess this is what what passes as character uh, introspection in the movie, you know, where they all have like their little monologues about like what it's like to be an outlaw and like what this life has done to them and, and stuff. Lee is having his PTSD dreams what the hell was that no clue the, again this is one of the least you've barely seen this guy he said like maybe four lines in the movie up till now and then suddenly he wakes up from the worst nightmare ever he goes from the bed all the way to the other side of the room he has the Ra's al Ghul nightmare from the Dark Knight Rises yes and he's just losing that's, his shit that's exactly what happens he has the Ra's al Ghul nightmare and then the villagers just tell him that it's gonna be okay it's at this point where everyone realizes that Chico is actually a Hispanic male and that he should perhaps go and recover with Calvera's men and figure out exactly what's going on it's like all, all the little like hints of racism that have been like spread throughout the movie they were building up to this moment where they basically hand him a giant sombrero and they're like hey this is all you need to pass as an, a, a Mexican bandit he, and he's like really happy to do it too like it never even crosses his mind that this is a foolish idea he puts it on and he's like oh yeah I can do this uh, they were just one step away from like handing him a poncho and a felt mustache for <laughs> yeah. him to wear they probably had it too, but he's so eager that he just left, you know, without everything. How, how has he survived this long? I don't know. It, it Again, I, I was waiting for him to die in that scene. It looked like that was going to be the end of it. During the shootout, he even almost got shot in the head. It went through his hat. It left a hole in his hat. Through Chico's uh, sleuthing, he finds out exactly why Calvera has been raiding this village for so long. And it's not some evil grand plan. It's... It, He's hungry. His men are hungry. <laughs> but see, but we knew that. I mean, he said it in the opening sequence. <laughs> he told the villagers, and I didn't think that it was crucial information, but they react like it's like, wow, this is a discovery. Like, you know, this is a major piece of intel that Chico's bringing us. Oh, he's hungry. That's why he's doing this. Hmm. But we knew that from the beginning. So why is this such a big, you know, a big moment? Well, and then even more so, then after this news comes back, they start second-guessing that they're outnumbered. They knew going in they were going to be outnumbered. I so. mean, were you were you looking at the same gunfights that we were looking at? <laughs> because that's, I could have told you that, yeah, this is, this is not going to be easy. We get our first heterosexual moment of the film, though, when Chico and Petra, uh, he's just explaining everything to her about what he's going to do and who he's going to be in the big showdown. And we get our first and only kiss of the film. Do they kiss her? Mm-hmm. They, oh, okay, I, I couldn't remember. I just know that she was very much, like, she was obviously into it, and he was way more interested in what Yul Brynner and Steve McQueen thought of him at the time. He just kept going, like, oh, you should have seen their faces when I told them how I infiltrated the camp and whatever. I'm like, do you realize that the girl in front of you is pretty much taking her clothes she's, off? She's DTF, man. <laughs> she's, she's ready to go. And, yeah, she. it doesn't even matter. I think, to her, he's just a body. It looks like she's been pent up for a while and just is ready to rock and roll. Which is a liberating part of the film, precursor to the Beyonce's and Nicki Minaj's of the world. Unfortunately, they really, they don't, you know, reward her with anything. I mean, you know, yeah, Chico may be just the body, but it's still like, you know, she could have, if she was looking to hook up with an American, there were like six other dudes that were, well, actually, never mind, maybe not six. Lee's outfit was a bit too perfect, I think. Read into that what you will. Lee doesn't count. He's also like just screaming in the night and he has his own issues. I don't think he has time for women or men. He's in a world of his own. And Charles Brunson is into kids, obviously, so he's also out. So, okay, so you have four other dudes that you could have gone after. Why do you go against like the little punk that's more interested in in impressing uh, Yul Brynner and Steve McQueen? So the Magnificent Seven plan to beat Calvera to the punch. They're going to go to the camp that Chico had staked out and just, uh, you know, take him out there. They were outsmarted, though. They were led astray, and they go to the camp, and it's been abandoned. They come back to the town, and all the villagers are held hostage, and Calvera hops out and is just like, fuck you guys, we win. He wants their guns, and he wants them to leave. I don't (coughs) understand that... I mean, this is one of those, like, stupid movie moments where... 
you're the bad guy. These guys killed a bunch of your guys. They're obviously dangerous. You have them, you know, right there. You could kill them. You're already, you're a criminal. It's not like you have some sort of, like, weird code where you, you're not going to kill them because of, you know, it's against the law or whatever, you know? But he doesn't kill them. <laughs> he he does everything for He gives them food, clothes, like, horses. He even, like, allows them to keep their guns. He just says, hey, can you just pretend that you're giving me your guns just for show so that they... Submissiveness. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then I'll give them back to you. He does. It, it, Chico almost blows it, though. He he looks like he's going to... He's feeling I, froggy. I honestly... Okay, now, I thought that that's where he was going to die. I thought that he was going to do something stupid and get shot there. But nope. Yule Brenner just bitch slaps him. His face after he gets bitch slapped is just amazing. His his heart is broken. But the Magnificent Seven are getting ready to head out of town, and we get Fernando O'Reilly, Charles Bronson's farewell scene with uh, his little boyfriends, or which features some spanking, yeah. as, as you would expect. One of the boys calls his father a coward, and Bronson takes exception to that and begins spanking the young man. It was so weird. Oh, you haven't seen Heron Vice. Heron Vice has, like, a spanking scene. that I'm not going to say it comes out of nowhere, but it really it really shocks you when it happens. And this, I mean, it's not the same context, and it's obviously not sexual at all, And you know, besides all our jokes. It's not. But it, was, it did come out of nowhere. I don't know what made Charles Brunson think that he had the right to spank that kid, but that was way wrong. That was not... If you got to do anything like, you know, slap him in the head or something, but... It's like Secretary with James Spader and Maggie Gyllenhaal. Was, Some things can't be unseen. That was really weird. But we're basically just seeing all these guys, their mentalities before they head out of town. And Lee is just about to snap. The failed story arc of his character has led us nowhere, but you can just tell this is a guy that's just about to lose it. Harry, who's the other guy that, you know, gets gets short in. Who may stick. or may not actually exist. He may or may not actually exist. Well, you know, he does interact with some with some of the Mexicans earlier in the movie when he's trying to, like, find out if they have some secret treasure somewhere. But that could all be also in Yul Brynner's imagination because they do have a shot where Yul Brynner's just kind of, like, watching the whole thing unfold with amusement. And it actually makes sense that it would be all in Yul Brynner's head because the game that they're playing makes no sense. It's like he has three cups and they're all upside down and I guess the objective of the game is to flip them all right side up and for some reason that's supposed to be challenging. <laughs> Even uh, if they were drunk, it, you know, that shouldn't be a challenge. Uh, all the Mexican villagers have trouble doing it so that, that doesn't speak highly of the writer's opinion. They get to the edge of town and to his word Calvera has his men drop their guns off so really dumb, like incredible hubris from this bad guy. It just shows you that, you know, basically, you know, once again, America taking advantage of the little people you know, even when America loses, they win. <laughs> they take, again, another moment where the movie just takes its sweet time. Mm -hmm. it's, it's a good, like, ten-minute sequence where they're left, I guess, outside of town. And then they take uh, a heroic stance where they're just, like, talking about, well, should we go back? Should it's we the go entire back? premise of the Mighty Ducks acted out in, like, seven minutes. Because they rally and they're ready to go, but Harry says, fuck this, that's certain death. So he bails on it. No one really bats an eye, though, so the Magnificent Six hit up the village. and they, well, hit they don't bat an eye because he doesn't exist. <laughs> Touche. They hit up the village and they hit it hard, though. They come in, guns a-blazing, and just going ballistic on everything. Harry does return out of nowhere, though. And this, again, where it could be just Yul Brenner's imagination. He just appears, he's gunned down instantly, and he, then dies in Yul Brenner's arms. He comes back to die. He doesn't accomplish a single thing. He comes in, says something, he, some witty one-liner, then gets shot in the back. As he dies in Yul Brynner's arms, it's probably like the best scene in the movie because Yul Brynner, who has been telling him the entire time that there's no ulterior motive, that they're not there because there's some secret treasure or anything, just to help his friend, his imaginary friend, die in peace, tells him that, oh yeah, well, it wasn't for nothing. There really was some treasure. There was some gold. I actually, that was the one moment in the movie that I was like, oh. <laughs> Lee snaps, though, as we predicted. He barges into the little holding cell they have there in the village and within a second kills four men. Yes, and then he just stands there. <laughs> like, it's like he's just meeting his fate. Like Sean William Scott at the end of Southland Tales. He accomplished what he was there to do, and then he's just there to meet his fate. Walks outside, just gets gunned down, and dies in the street. 
Right, well, he doesn't just walk outside and gets He walks outside and then watches the villagers, you know, revolt and have a gunfight for, like, about five minutes. And then he gets killed because he wasn't doing anything else. In fact, most of the kills that happened in, in, the, in that last battle happened because they were just, like, people were just standing around instead of taking cover. The ending, this closing sequence is just horrific mayhem. There's machetes being wielded. There's a part where one of the women just bludgeons one of the banditos to death with a shovel. There's gunfire. It's just absolute chaos. Again, thank you, America. <laughs> These were peaceful villagers with no taste for blood and death. They had, a, like, an unfortunate cycle, but it was kind of like, you know, the food chain of everything. And But then America had to come in here and just fuck everything up and make them just, like, these... Just vicious people. It's like a more tame version of Campbell Holocaust, I feel. But Yul Brenner and Calvera have their final showdown. Chris and Calvera have the, the big standoff, and it lasts all of two seconds. It's very deflating. It's not some big, grandiose battle. You don't get your Batman and Bane, or I guess, um, what would be another good example? Batman and Joker, or Batman and Resident <laughs> <laughs> You don't get your Optimus Prime and Megatron. Calvera just shows up and smiles and points a gun at Chris, and Chris shoots him. Which, I mean, no big surprise. We've seen him outshoot everybody in the movie the entire, you know, for an hour and a half now, so... Mm-hmm. Britt is defending the village on the outside, and he is eventually gunned down. The The numbers just become too much for him. He He's doing well. He busts out his knife, though, for the final hurrah, but he can't get it off. And, you know, just dies in the street there. O'Reilly, Charles Bronson, is shot while he's protecting the young boys. So he has the most heroic death of anyone in the film. Except that the kids wouldn't be there to begin with if he hadn't been playing around with them the entire time. If he hadn't lured them into his ice cream truck. (laughs) Yes, so the only reason those kids are in danger is because, you know, he'd befriended them. So, well, it's just fitting that then he dies when he's trying to push them away. Somehow, amongst just this city of ruin and just bodies everywhere... The young pup, the rookie Chico, has survived and is one of the last men standing. As he, Chris, and Vin are the final men to win the showdown, and the Mexican village is saved. The salvation has happened. So they get ready to ride up out of town. Chico just decides to stay with the girl. The look on her... Yes. I mean, that is, like, really the movie. The movie has built up to this moment where he has to choose, do I stay as a third wheel you know, with uh, Yul Brynner and Super Queen, am I gonna, you know, because Vin and Chris are made for each other, and he'll mm-hmm. never be able to get between them, even though he loves them so much. Or do I just stay in the Mexican village and just, like, you know, hook up with this girl who obviously is way more into me than I am into her? I'm not sure, though. I think you get a sense of that he was just a body, that she was just ready to go, because when he returns to the village, her face is kind of like, oh, fuck. Like, <laughs> yeah. am I well, stuck with this yeah, now? That is true, but... He doesn't really belong with the, with the other two. Mm-hmm. So it's more like, okay, well, do I go back and try again with women, or do I, like, stick out with my two buddies? And yeah, it's obvious. I mean, they he doesn't make the decision. Chris tells him, hey, go ahead, adios. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he ya. just gives him the nod. Yeah. And so it ends with Chris and Vin riding off into the sunset together, and yeah, they should have held hands, I feel. I think that, come on, you're telling me this, this movie was about those two guys. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's, there's probably the most tense moment in the movie comes when they disagree, you know, when they're trying, they're having to talk of whether, like, should we stay or should we go, mm-hmm. and Chris is all about staying, and Vin goes like, well, you know, maybe it's not such a good idea anymore, and then they look at each other, and you're like, oh god, there's trouble in paradise. <laughs> that's, you know, that's the real meat of the story here. The other thing uh, is, right before uh, Calvera dies, when he's dying, you know, he's already been shot, and he's just looking at Chris, and he's like, why did you come back? Why did you come back to this shitty little village? And he doesn't answer. <laughs> there's, there's no reason, really. There's no answer. I mean... It was 20 bucks. That's a, oh, that yeah. was the cut. Each it, guy got 20 bucks. I think it was 20 bucks a week. But the whole story, even though it felt like it was a month, it happens in, like, what, two days? Jesus. Yeah, the, the, the time frame is not explained at all, but it definitely feels like a, a year has elapsed. Not just in the film, but in your life by the time it's over. Yeah, but, you know, you can just almost... Imagine this, like, in modern times, there's just, like, some Iraqi, you know, dude that's dying, and he's just asking, like, an American soldier, it's like, why'd you come back? Why? Why? And the guy's just like, eh. (laughs) (laughs) It's what I do. Thus concludes the Mission Impossible 2 of Westerns. An amazing soundtrack. uh, Very confusing action scenes that, you know, you can't really tell what's going on. A fun opening. But uh, in the end, just kind of was a disappointment. So are we ready for some real talk? 
Yeah, yeah. Let's do let's do some real talk. T-shirts, t-shirts, t-shirts. Hundreds of thousands of wrestling t-shirts, all for you to buy. Starring all of your favorite wrestlers. Daniel Bryan, Bret Hart Goes to Montreal, Some Dead Guy, The Blackjacks, Mulligan and Lanza, Not Wyndham and Bradshaw. Wrestling! SmarksLikeUs.com, SmarksLikeUs.com, SmarksLikeUs.com. Selling you wrestling t-shirts. Also available, buttons, stickers, and kitty cats. Meow. So The Magnificent Seven was released on October 23rd, 1960. To be a box office flop in America, but for whatever reason, it was huge in Europe. And that's what led to the movie Turning a Profit. I guess I need to brush up on history to know what, like, Europe life would have been like then. Like, if they Back had... in the 60s? Well, I'm just saying, like, in terms of if they had ever really seen many westerns, or if it was, like, still... If this was, like, a kind of radical new film to uh, be over at the time. This is more embarrassing for me, because I went to film school, and we had, like, a film history class. But I have no idea when spaghetti westerns came to be, but, you know, it's Italy, so... And obviously, we're very qualified to talk about this movie. <laughs> Before you go on, I have a slightly longer quote now from Howard Thompson from New York Times. And this is, uh, I guess, this was published right after The Magnificent Seven opened in 1960. It says, Even with some highly fetching Mexican scenery and color, this United Artists release, thrusting Yul Brynner well to the fore, is a pallid, pretentious, and overlong reflection of the Japanese original. We now have the same story, basically, set in a bleak, terrified little farming outpost below the Rio Grande in, supposedly, the post-Civil War era. And it soon becomes apparent, in John Sturges's stately, overly detailed direction, that the picture is going to take its own sweet time moving at a thoughtful snail's pace. So, he didn't like it much. No, apparently not. Uh, he thought it was slow, which I, I think that it can be... You could say that it's a slow movie. It didn't really bother me. as a, I mean, because even as a slow movie, it's a short movie. Yeah. It's like, what, it's 145? two hours and, like, ten minutes. Really? Like that. Yeah. Now, that's uh, that's where some of this stuff gets kind of wish-washy. One of the things I really enjoy about what we've done so far is there's been no thematic flow to what we've done. It's just we've just picked random-ass movies to do. So that kind of gets difficult, though, when you do a movie from, like, two years ago, because movies are so much faster paced now. Right. And so, like, watching this, it definitely feels longer, but that's just because that's how we've been predispositioned now. It's just, like, you know, we you go through things a lot quicker. Right. No, no, I actually have to do that every time I watch a movie that's mm-hmm. old enough, you know, anytime I watch a classic. It's, like, I think I mentioned in one past episode, I have to adjust my expectations, because, you know, adjusting my expectations, this was about right, you mm-hmm. know, it had, like, that type of acting, and that type of, like, th- that pacing, and all that stuff. I, Ewell Brenner's such a pimp, man. Oh, yeah, 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 no, he's a badass, him and Steve McQueen are just, they, they sell this movie. I don't know, I think that the problem I, I was mentioning, I haven't seen Seven Samurai, but I was telling you before we sat down to record this one, that it seems that that was one of the big problems when it came out, mm-hmm. when Magnificent Seven came out, that people, you know, haven't seen Seven Samurai and it coming so soon after it was just impossible not to compare it to the movie that it was uh, supposed to be a remake of and I guess Seven Samurai is faster paced or it might be a better movie but I think that having not not having seen Seven Samurai I have that advantage of being able to judge the movie mostly on its own I mean like I said I watch Box Live but (laughs) that is very different I don't know it worked for me as far as you know I I like that it took its time if it it didn't take its time then what do you have left Mm -hmm. I don't understand you know that's the fact that it takes its time I think it's what makes it special whatever little character moments you get it is a movie you could tell in 15 minutes but right yeah but the acting and the scenery is pretty breathtaking no matter like what era of film it comes from yeah it's yeah it's exactly it's a, it's a movie that you can tell in 15 minutes the plot is not complicated at all yeah so it's I mean it really is an 18 there's a way so. to do that too like there's a way to make a movie like this where there's a plot that you can tell that fast and you make it a good movie whereas there's a bad way to do that too and the most readily available example I have is American Hustle could have told that movie in 15 minutes but that movie fucking sucks with this you know the proper pacing and enough characters with enough kind of like things to make you go, huh? Obviously has the reputation it does for a reason. Yeah, it's it's a lot of fun. I think that that first quote by Scott Weinberg, he got it right. I mean, even if it's not, like, I guess, you know, it's no unforgiven if you're talking about Westerns, you know, or yeah. maybe even, like, High Noon as far as, you know, I've seen very few Westerns. Uh, I don't think I can compare it to anything else. But <laughs> tend to you more. Fuck that movie. <laughs> but uh, it's it's still a lot of fun, and that's, that's really all that I would ask from it, you know, I I can't believe it's two hours and ten minutes, dude. It felt like a lot shorter. Really? <laughs> yeah. It's at ninety three percent on Rotten Tomato. The main thing it's known for though is its score. 
I, I still have it stuck in my head. Yeah. <laughs> I, I can see that. I can see that. There's, I stand by my statement from earlier that it's really the Magnificent, magnificent Five and then the other two guys that you, know, you just see a couple times during the movie. They don't really get the weight that the others do. Mm-hmm. You know, everybody else, you can... I mean, you can tell them apart because it's easy. Okay, so Harry's the greedy one that's looking for hidden treasure. And then Lee is the one with, like, some serious issues. Yeah. Like, the, the, the one with PTSD. If but, this movie was remade today, Lee would get the most, like, character time. Because they would be like, well, right. you talk about these problems. He'd, well, he'd be the one with, like, the Academy Award nomination. Yeah, you know, exactly. He'd, he'd, have, he'd be the one with the issues. And, uh, and Harry would be uh, the comic relief one. Played by Dan Fogler. Yeah, I was going to say, or Jonah Hill. but <laughs> Josh Gad. Josh Gad. <laughs> it depends, like, where they are on the budget. Yeah, like, exactly. Who's, who's producing <laughs> this, you know? Now you'll go to Clark Duke. Oof. I could buy Clark Duke on a Western. <laughs> The craziest thing I learned when I was researching this is the second most shown film in American television history, right behind Wizard of Oz. Really? Yeah, so it's like the most commonly played. I guess I don't watch enough TV because I've never no. seen it. That's, yeah. Oh, it's like, are you are you a Western person? I mean, because I'm not. So, but that's another reason why I was just <coughs> entertained by everything. It's not like I could be like, oh, well, I've seen, you know, guys riding horses and shooting each other plenty of times. I don't really watch that many Westerns, so... To me, it's still like pretty new and fresh when I see something like that. Yeah. Maybe if you're a Western guy, you know. All Which those... there are, yeah, and I'm, I'm not either. I mean, all you can do is just they work for you, and why? And if mm-hmm. it didn't work for you, why? And you know, it mostly worked for me. I I could tell like a couple things, you know, like those two guys that uh, don't really get that much screen time. The idea I made fun of it, but I actually don't have that much of a problem with the idea of the bad guy letting them live. You know, even giving them their guns back. His logic is not solid, but it's believable. You know, he's kind of dumb, and for him to think that they're not going to come back for vengeance, his fear, his his logic is that if he kills them, then maybe more Americans will come to avenge them, right? Is that what yeah. he says? Okay, I mean, I can see him thinking that. It is pretty weird, though, tonally, because in the end, it doesn't portray the Americans as, like, necessarily heroes. It's just like, they were just necessary cogs in this machine that helped something work. But that's cool that they, what they say at the end, Hugh Brenner goes like, yeah, they were right. The only winners are the farmers because mm-hmm. we are losers. We always lose. That was an insanely like insightful tone to end on. I was, <laughs> yeah. I was kind of blown away by the last line of it. That is... <laughs> don't want to piss people off, but that is really... That's more of what I was hoping from uh, <laughs> to get from American Sniper. <laughs> yeah. I, dude, I'm serious. Like, you know, the whole like... Wow, this sucks. This is this is really sad. And even we're like when we're the heroes, we're still losing because you know we're all fucked up. It's like that's no way of living. Going around like just shooting people, yeah. you know, and not really being able to dedicate yourself to anything else. And he says it like encapsulates it in like that one final. And you know, also like in the conversation they have earlier when they're listing, they're doing like their math and this like you know number of people that love you, number of enemies, number of like things tying you down. I don't know what else they say, but it's just basically they're talking about how if you're a gun for hire, you have nothing in your life other than being a gun for hire. Yeah. So that's pretty cool. Would you agree with 93%? I don't see why not. I mean, if it was made today, uh, no, because, yeah. you know, but if you put it in context, back in the 60s, you know, as a guy that is not like knowledgeable about Westerns, yeah, I'll give it 93%. Yeah. Not a single percent more though. Ninety three. That's where it's. That's where I draw the line. Ninety four percent would be too much. It does look really good. That's what I kept noticing because that's still it would have been filmed in nineteen sixty. That's still around a time where like a lot of movies relied on like completely built sets and stuff. And those are clearly like the movies shot on location in Mexico and they just did some serious research as to where to film it and everything like that. So it was visually appealing and that really helped the whole feel of it. Yeah, and then the performance. It's really, I mean, if I would say, you know, you need to watch it for one reason, it would be to see uh, Yul Brynner and Steve McQueen mm-hmm. just being badasses. I think this might be the first Steve McQueen movie I've ever seen. I've got a crush on him now. I mean, yeah, I was going to say, you need to, you need to up your game on that one. I read a book. It's fiction mostly, but it's based on, like, I guess, it's set, it's a, it's a period piece set back in, like, the early Hollywood days, and Steve McQueen is one of the characters in it, like, one of the side characters, and he's a fucking nightmare to deal with. <laughs> they paint him as this, like, just crazy actor that's really difficult to handle, and... From just what I've known, or have read about him, rather, weird tendencies on sets and stuff like that, but one of them was he would demand things in bulk, like, random things, like, 
clothes and like razors. After he died, people found out that he would take those things and donate them to like. <laughs> I thought you were gonna say that he would just sell them. <laughs> <laughs> Before that'd be, yeah, that'd be even more baller. <laughs> Turned out that he had this business on the side. After he died, it became Costco. But yeah, he he was supposed to have a pretty big ego and be difficult to deal with. Oh, that's fine. You know, he can he can shoot a gun. He gets that ego. It's it's justified. All right, so that was the Magnificent Seven. That was um, a more interesting one we've done. I think we did It's a Wonderful Life, which was a classic, but that movie was a lot easier to kind of pick at and make fun of than this it was hard to make it sound like it was a bad movie mm-hmm. but but it was i mean there was a lot of stuff that you could make fun of this one i mean that too but it, there's also there's so much just riding on horses <laughs> yeah <laughs> you know what else are you gonna say about that uh i think that also what might have given a little made it a little different is just the fact that neither of us had seen this movie before mm-hmm this is the first time that we had a movie that neither of us had seen. Even with like something like Paul Blart, you already seen it. Mm-hmm. So thank you for putting that on the public record that I had seen Paul it's, Blart, but I had never seen hey, The Magnificent hey, Seven. Hey, it's it was on the episode. <laughs> I just I just connected the dots for anybody that hadn't like really figured it out by now. So uh, just the basic stuff that we should always mention from now on is that we have a website which is. We are the contrarians.com where you can just listen to the episodes or download the episodes from there and look at pretty pictures and read the about page and I think even leave comments. Oh, we're on iTunes. That's the big thing now. That's right. That's, we're yeah, we're on iTunes, so just look for the contrarians. Subscribe. Uh, subscribe. Rate or review. Yes, there's also the contrarians podcast, which is a podcast about video games. That's not us, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> we're the ones that are at the like TV and movies. And then we also have, uh, like any self-respecting blog and podcast, we have an email address that you can use if you want to complain to us about, you know, why we're so harsh on Paul Blart or why we're so nice to uh, Family Stone. Or uh, even if you want to suggest a movie. Yeah, about, I had that idea, and I guess we'll put it here on the record, that after a certain number of episodes, we should celebrate by having one episode where it's just like, I don't know what we would call it, but, you know, a special episode where... We just go after a movie that's right in the middle, the mm-hmm. kind of movies that we usually don't take on the show, you know? Not a really low or really high run tomato score. Somewhere in that C to D range. Yeah, yeah, like that gray area where, like, a lot of people have opinions on both sides, and maybe, hopefully, we can just have one that's funny and entertaining. A friend of ours is apparently a big fan of Dick Tracy, and I'm not, and <laughs> I think that Dick Tracy would be a good movie to just trash. <laughs> or maybe not because it's right in the middle so yeah. we have to decide what we're going to do with it. But yeah, we have an email address and that's uh, wearethecontrarians at gmail.com Send us comments and pictures. Suggestions. Cool stuff. Keep it nice though. Yes. It's, <laughs> it's, it's a family show even with all the cousins. Alright, so for the next episode we're going to do Empire Records. Are we? Yeah. Are we? Wait, is it? What's the, what's the score? It's like a 24%. God. That movie. <laughs> yeah. All right, Empire Records. I'm, I'm down. All right. Let's do it. That's going to do it for us here on The Contrarians, where we're right, you're wrong, and we'll catch you next time. Thank you for listening to The Contrarians. On your way out, be sure to swing over to youtube.com backslash ovniofilms. That's O-V-N-I-O films. And check out The New Adventures of Baby Jesus, a web series created and written by The Contrarians' very own Julio Oliveira.